There's an ancient fable that many of you probably heard of. It originated somewhere in the subcontinent of India and has sifted its way through various religious traditions and philosophical traditions. And it's the story of, uh, or the, the fable of the, the elephant and the four blind men, right? Uh, the story goes something like this in some variation. Uh, four blind men uh, are introduced to the concept of an elephant. They've never heard of an elephant. Obviously, they've never seen one because they're blind and had never touched one. Uh, each of them is asked to describe the elephant, and so the first blind man reaches out and grabs the elephant by the tail and says, this elephant thing must be uh, just another word for a rope, because certainly this is a rope, it's rough, and uh, elephant must just be another word for rope. The second man reached out and touched the elephant, expecting to feel a rope like the first man had. He was surprised to find a pillar of immense girth and strength, for he had touched the elephant's leg. And so he declared, this must be a pillar of stone or the trunk of a tree. Elephant must mean strength. The third man, confused by the first two and their conflicting report, reaches out and blindly grasps the elephant's ear, thin to the touch, broader than his two hands put together. He declared, elephants are like fans that move the air on a hot day. And the fourth blind man reached out and took hold of the trunk, which swayed back and forth and curled and uncurled, and he declared that an elephant certainly is a massive serpent. Four men four vantage points, four opinions. Were they right or were they wrong? Well, no one could argue with their descriptions. So yes, in some way, an elephant's tail is uh, like a rope and, and, and legs are definitely large and strong, like pillars or trunks. You kind of get the picture. But as you know, an elephant is a whole thing. It's a unique animal. And while its trunk and its ears and its legs and its tail might resemble other objects or even other animals, they are uniquely part of what makes an elephant an elephant. The blind men were only getting part of the information, and what information they got, they tried to fit into their existing categories of reality. Now, I mentioned this ancient fable because it came to mind this week when I was studying Luke's gospel. Throughout Luke's gospel, you will find the refrain in one way or another, who is Jesus? Who is this man? It's an important question, and if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or you're here to check out what a follower of Jesus might be like, it's got to be one of the most important questions we could ask. Why? Because the mission of a disciple of Jesus is to trust and obey Jesus and to be like Jesus. So how can we do those things if we don't know who he is? In Luke 8, 25, Jesus falls asleep on a boat with his disciples and this massive storm rages and these seasoned fishermen are so freaked out. They, it, it's such a storm that they think they might die. They wake up Jesus and what does he do? He speaks to the wind and the waves and the storm dies down. And the, the guys are amazed. They've never seen anything like it. And so they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? By the way, that is a great question, right? You won't find anything in Scripture that says the Messiah was expected to be able to control the weather. That's just not there. Now, I know some of our uh, cohort kids are up today, our, our older elementary and middle school kids. So if you want extra credit or something to do because you're getting bored, 
Here's extra credit. Check out Psalm 89, 1 through 9, and or Psalm 107, 1 through 27. And that, that might answer to you who it is in the Bible is able to control the wind and the waves. In Luke 9, 7 through 9, King Herod hears rumors that uh, of all the things that Jesus and his disciples are doing, casting out demons and healing the sick and proclaiming the reign of God. And he gets concerned because he, he had a run-in with another guy named John the Baptist and didn't like what he was saying and had his head chopped off. And he's getting nervous because this guy, Jesus, and his disciples sound a little bit like this John the Baptist. And so maybe John the Baptist has come back to life and he's going to come get King Herod. And other people are saying that Elijah is back. And other people are saying one of the old, other Old Testament prophets is back. Now, why would Herod think that? Maybe it's because all those prophets pointed to a day when someone would come who would do the kinds of things and say the kinds of things that Jesus was doing and that Jesus was saying. And the question to the reader is, who is Jesus? In Luke 9, 8, 18 through 20, Jesus is praying, and he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered, some say you're John the Baptist. And, then, and some other people are saying maybe Elijah. And some other people are saying one of the Old Testament prophets. And, and then Jesus probes a little bit deeper and he says, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter steps out for the group and he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ of God. And Christ is a Greek word that translates a Hebrew word, which is Messiah. So Peter's saying, you are the Messiah of God. Who is Jesus? Like the blind men in the parable of the elephant, the people observing Jesus were making assumptions based on their limited perspective. You might say they had limited sight. There's a great line in the film The Princess Bride. I, there's like a hundred great lines in the film The Princess Bride. Uh, but the self-proclaimed genius Vizzini repeatedly blurts out, Inconceivable! Every time something happens that doesn't go to his plan, after he labels several incidents as inconceivable, Indigo says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, right? And in a similar way, Peter declares Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus could have said, you keep using that word. I am the Messiah, but when you use that title, I don't think we're talking about the same thing. So let's see what Jesus, uh, how he reveals himself to, to his disciples. How does he try and open their eyes? And if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. I'm going to read the Gospel of Luke, um, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. And while he was praying the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and, and gleaming like lightning. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah who, appearing in glory, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw saw his glory and the two men standing with him. 
And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Lord, thank you for this word that reveals to us what you revealed to them. Lord, help us not to um, import labels on you or to think we understand wholly yet. We pray for your ministry, Holy Spirit, to open this word to us and speak to us afresh today. We want to encounter you uh, like your disciples encountered you. Amen. You may be seated. So Jesus goes up on this mountain with his companions, and while praying, the appearance of his face became different, is what it says, and his clothing became white and gleaming, literally flashing like lightning is what kind of the Greek means there. And the whole scene must have been inconceivable, (laughs) and it was inconceivable for the disciples at first. I mean, the story tells us that they're overcome with sleep. Once again, this is kind of a theme now, if you've been following along in Luke's gospel, once again, the disciples uh, are not quite with it. They're not fully aware of what's going on. But then, the text says, when they become fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him, which were Moses and Elijah. What is Jesus trying to show them in this scene? What is Jesus trying to show us through this story? Like the blind men and the elephant, the disciples have descriptions of things that Jesus had said and done, but they didn't have categories with which to define Jesus. They could only use the old categories, and who could blame them? All they had known was things like prophet and messiah. They couldn't conceive of the mind-blowing reality that Jesus was actually God in the flesh. Nothing in their scriptures, nothing in the teachings of the rabbis that they had heard, had prepared them for that category, like it was a category that they didn't know existed yet. So how would Jesus communicate this new paradigm shift, this new category to them? Well, like any master teacher, he starts with something that they already know, and they know the story of God. Musician, writer, modern troubadour Steve Bell writes of an experience he had with New Testament scholar Rick Watts. And I quote, while traveling in Egypt with my friend Rick Watts, Rick pointed out to me the parallels between this story and that of the Exodus. Moses hears the cry of an oppressed people, leads them to the Red Sea, which obeys his command and opens up, lets them pass through before drowning legions of Pharaoh's soldiers behind them. Moses then ascends on a mountain where he encounters Yahweh and returns with his face glowing like the shining sun. He continues, similarly, Jesus, moved by the crowds, engages in their suffering, crosses a body of water in Luke 8 that obeys his voice, remember the storm scene, 
Then he casts a legion, legions of demons into those same waters. Remember the pigs that he called off the cliff? Before ascending a mountain where his face begins to shine like the sun. There's kind of some same things going on here. The point of departure here with the story in Exodus, however, is that Jesus does not just meet God on the mountain like Moses did. Rather, it's revealed that he is the very God of history. He doesn't shine with the light of God like Moses did. He is the light of God. You see, Jesus' transfiguration wasn't something for himself, as if he didn't get who he was. It was a revelation of his identity for the sake of the disciples and for Luke's readers who, hey, that's you and me. In ancient thought, especially ancient Jewish thought, it was believed that your, your countenance, kind of like your, your demeanor on your face, was a direct expression for your relationship with God and what was going on in your heart. So can you see what's going on, what the disciples might think if Jesus' face is like shining like the sun? Wow! His countenance is like radiating the power of God, the presence of God. This something is special about this man. They're still confused, though, and it, it seems that Peter may have thought Jesus was on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Maybe he wanted to preserve the moment, or maybe he's just trying to be helpful, but Peter enthusiastically offers to build these three booths, these tabernacles, tents, one for each of these special gifted and glorified men on the mountaintop. And at that moment, Peter made the mistake of thinking Jesus was merely somehow uh, as holy or as authoritative as Moses and Elijah. Peter must have been very impressed with Jesus, by the way. Nobody, maybe David, was the only person that would be seen in such high esteem as Moses and Elijah to a guy like Peter. So he must really think Jesus is something special. After all, how crazy is it that his rabbi, his master, his teacher that he's been hanging around with for two and a half years or so, is on the same level as Moses and Elijah? Wow! Think if your pastor was that cool. Make you feel good, right? But what Peter didn't realize at this moment is that he hadn't gone far enough. And lots of people don't go far enough. Lots of people think Jesus is just one more notable person from history, right up there with Muhammad and Moses and Krishna or Buddha. If there was a, a religion kind of section at the county fair, in many people's eyes, Jesus would just get a booth next to everybody else. Maybe next to the scones or something like that, I don't know. Just one more man or one more movement or one more set of beliefs that you can choose from. But Christians don't think that, do we? No, we, we know better. We declare through our creeds and our statements of faith that Jesus is high and exalted, and we, we use words like that. He alone is worthy of worship. We even have songs that say that. And yet, when it comes to the choices we make in life, Jesus usually just gets a booth next to the other gods, like our comfort and our security and our pleasure and our pain. Jesus is God on paper and on theology quizzes and in our songs, but our sin and shame oftentimes rule us. Like Peter, when we make the mistake of trying to 
stick the king of kings in a booth next to everything else in life. We need a bigger reminder of who he is. And for Peter, that revelation came in the form of a cloud. Clouds on a mountain with characters like Elijah and Moses. Ring a bell? That's how Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, shows up. In those passages that Ian read earlier, we saw the cloud of God with Moses on the mountaintop. The cloud of God, of the pillar of fire and cloud, uh, led it, the Israelites through, through the wilderness. Elijah, on top of uh, Mount Carmel, uh, has, I said Carmel, maybe I'm hungry, um, has, has the cloud there, the presence of God. Anyway, a cloud envelops Peter, James, and John and declares that they ought to listen to Jesus because he is the Son of God. He doesn't just get a booth next to everybody else. He's not just the same as Elijah and Moses, one of uh, other great people. He's not just a prophet or a leader of Israel. He is the stuff and the person of God himself. He has authority. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law represented by Moses and the prophets represented by Elijah. Listen to him, is what God says. And that command is part of the very reason uh, our church is doing the community Bible experience together, reading the entire New Testament in the weeks that are leading up to Easter. We want to listen to Jesus and we want to listen together in community. So the transfiguration, in part, is a revelation of Jesus' divinity and authority. He alone, truly, is worthy of our worship and our obedience. He doesn't have any equals. That would be quite enough to wrestle with, I think. Um, you can kind of cut it there. But I think it would only be half the story. It would only be half the story. Jesus is doing a lot more than simply saying, I am divine. He's also going to define for us what glory means. And the key to understanding this comes at the beginning of the episode, before the disciples are fully awake. As the story goes, Jesus is praying, and then he begins to glow, and behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in splendor, were speaking of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. If you're comfortable with this, I want, to, I want to invite you to close your eyes and listen to the text again. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who, appearing in splendor, were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. I'm going to read it one more time, but I want to make two observations. First, and this is so cool, I just discovered this this week. The word for departure in this sentence is the Greek word exodon, from where we get the word exodus. And in fact, when the Old Testament book of Exodus is translated into Greek in the Septuagint, that's exactly the word used, is exodus. And the Greek word for accomplish is most often translated fulfill or complete. So hear it again. And behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in splendor were speaking of his exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. Let me say this as clearly as possible. I'm just going to read what I wrote so I could get it clear. On the Mount of Transfiguration, 
Jesus reveals his divinity to his disciples, but not his glory. Jesus reveals his divinity to his disciples, but not his glory. The glory of God doesn't take place on the mountaintop. It takes place on the top of a wooden cross on a little bump of a hill called Golgotha, nicknamed Skull Hill. Jesus redefines what glory is. The glory of people and the gods that we create in our epic stories and in our mythologies are gods of power and gods of pride and gods of transcendence that can't be touched or hurt or gods of, of, of only eminence that are trapped within nature in the pantheistic worldview, for example. But the glory of God is defined as his sacrificial love for us. The divine one of the transfiguration shows his glory in the crucified one on Good Friday. They're one and the same person. The famous and wonderful John Stott wrote, I could never myself believe in a God if it I could never myself believe in God if it weren't for the cross. The only God I believe in, he writes, is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as the God on the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who is just immune to pain all the time? He continues, I've entered many Buddhist temples and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, his arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face detached from the agonies of the world. But each time, after a while, I have had to turn away. And in imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That's the God for me, writes John Stott. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. He suffered for us. And here lies the good news. The exodus that Jesus spoke of with Moses and Elijah isn't just suffering for the sake of humanity. Isn't just suffering for the sake of identifying with us like, yay, okay, our God gets us. It's still really hard down here. It was a suffering for the sake of our exodus, our rescue, our deliverance. It actually does something for us to us. Moses led the people from freedom uh, or, or to freedom from death in the form of Pharaoh and his army of oppression who were chasing them down. Jesus leads us to freedom from sin and death altogether, not just from one enemy. Jesus leads us into a new exodus, a final exodus, an exodus that is an entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And believe it or not, I know that sometimes I, I've said this and, and I've definitely heard people say this, like, ah, oh, I just wish I could have been there with the disciples and, like, talked to Jesus and touched him and seen him. And I, Granted, that would be really cool. But believe it or not, you and I are actually in a better position than the disciples to know Jesus in his divinity and in his glory. 
the disciples, even after they saw all of this going on with Jesus, his transfiguration, talking to Moses and Elijah, they didn't understand. You and I wouldn't have understood either. Yet they didn't, they didn't know at that time that Jesus would go to the cross. They, they didn't know about the resurrection. They hadn't experienced the filling of the Holy Spirit. But we live in an age when Jesus is made available to us through his Holy Spirit and through the Scriptures. Listen to him is the command of the Father. He's very near. Listen to him. He's trustworthy. Listen to him. His words will actually lead you to life. In a moment, we're going to enter into a time of healing prayer. Jeannie Wagner is going to come join me. It's a time when uh, we're going to have music playing, and you can simply pray where you're at and, and process uh, what's going on, what God might be saying. Or you can come forward, uh, as people often do, to receive uh, healing prayer of some kind. And, and I want to invite you to listen to him. To listen for how he's leading you. What is he saying? What is his invitation? Maybe he's inviting you to trust him for healing. A wound or a disease or part of your body that is failing, that he's inviting you to ask for healing. Maybe he's inviting you to come and to seek forgiveness and to be filled with his spirit that enables us to overcome the sins that so entangle us. Maybe Jesus is inviting you to pray about an emotional wound, a grief or a loss, a, a regret, or some form of emotional violence that you've been carrying on the inside. Whatever it is, I, I, I encourage us to listen for his voice because it always will lead us to life. Jeannie, you want to come join me?